Hey, what's going on, you guys? This is Jay, and uh, as always, I'm here with my friend Isaac. And on this episode of the Regeneration Podcast, this is uh, quite exciting. We are in conversation with Mark Sayers. Um, if you don't know Mark, he you should. He uh, He's one of um, the most unique and, and brilliant minds um, in and for the church today, in my opinion. He's uh, he's a pastor and a writer, cultural commentator, and uh, he's written several books. He's um, and he pastors and serves at a church called Red in Melbourne, Australia. Um, his most recent book is a book called Reappearing Church, which is uh, in some ways a follow-up to a book that he wrote um, a handful of years ago, a book that I read a couple of years ago and was uh, incredibly inspiring and thought-provoking and jarring in a lot of ways for me, called Disappearing Church. Um, and in light of that book, I'm so glad he wrote this follow-up because this follow-up Reappearing Church is um, it's incredibly hopeful. And I know that we live in strange times, and uh, particularly for those of us who are trying to faithfully follow Jesus and um, serve alongside the church. It's challenging, and yet, deeply aware of the challenges, Mark is incredibly hopeful, and he's got um, really fascinating reasons why. So we get into all of that in this conversation, uh, and I think it's going to do for you what um, it did for us, which was inspire us and provoke us um, to hope and uh, and to maybe even incorporating some necessary disruptions into our everyday lives. So here is our conversation with Mark Sayers. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. We, um, man, we've been big fans of your work for a long time. Uh, I read Disappearing Church uh, just a couple of years ago, and it was simultaneously um, convicting and inspiring and a little depressing (laughs) and all of those things. (laughs) And uh, you just, um, you know, you you just released uh, your new book, Reappearing Church. Uh, almost as a follow-up to that last book. And uh, I just have to ask you as we begin, most people today, Christians and not, think that the church um, at best is irrelevant and at worst is toxic and harmful. Uh, certainly Christianity has lost its position, at least in the Western world, uh, in the public square and public discourse, um, its influence at least. But you just wrote and released this incredibly hopeful book about the future. And um, you're you're not just a pastor, church leader, writer. You're a cultural commentator. So you're actually very aware of what is happening, uh, more so than most. And yet, in spite of all that you know and all that you see, you're hopeful about the future of the church and about what God might be up to in and through the church, even in the West. Um, why? <laughs> what gives you that hope? Yeah. Um, I woke up this morning and uh, got up and my son woke up about the same time as me and I found him in our living room and he was looking at a small uh, little pot and uh, just staring at it. I'm like, what are you doing? And he said, um, I'm waiting for this seed to grow. So last night he, he got a seed from the supermarket and planted it last night, watered it, went to bed and woke up this morning expecting the plant to have grown. Um, I think he planted a radish and expected to have a radish plant. And so I, I sat down with him and I was like, okay, Billy, you got to understand that it takes time. Like it could be four or five weeks before you see anything. And I think there's a little analogy there to how we see the church in the West, that 
if you look at it through this very much how our culture tells us to look at at this moment, if you look at it through a very uh, now lens, uh, if you don't look at it with a, a historical overview, uh, you're going to be wondering where the shoots are. It's going to look like just a complete barren little wasteland. Uh, but moments like this, moments of like, secularism or when the church seems like it's fallen over actually need to be reframed with a much more longer view. Um, you have these moments when the church springs into life of tremendous fruitfulness. And then you have these fallow periods. Then often after them, there is this springing again into life. So the fallow periods look like nothing's happening, but actually what, what Billy knows is that underneath that, that dirt is actually a seed. And so there's this process when the seeds are underground, not a whole look like, lot, lot look like it's happening. Even the top can look completely barren or like it's devastated. But at some point, it's going to spring out of the ground. And I'm asking people to reframe this moment as a fellow time where God is doing something under the ground, but soon something will begin to sprout out. So we can actually look at this through a historical long view of how God works in history rather than just what's happening in this exact moment. What are some of the historic, you mentioned the hist, you know, histor, history repeating that, or you've seen it before. What, is that, what does that look like? Are there any concrete examples that, that you draw hope from? If, if you look at the 18th century, um, just to pick on one character, there's a guy, Charles Simeon, um, and he uh, was a vicar. Uh, he was sent or got a post at Cambridge, at a church called Trinity Church in Cambridge. And this is the 18th century. And often we think of the 18th century as the time of Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, all these revivals and renewals. Now, in the 18th century, when he goes to Cambridge, uh, literally his theology lecturers are drunk. Hmm. Um, there is rioting in, in Cambridge. Um, public morality is at an all-time low. They basically had to have on students' doors these thick oak doors because people would just break in and attack mm-hmm. you. Uh, the church has um, got this thin veneer of cultural Christianity, which is more about, uh, I guess, uh, aligning with the British Empire than it is about really following the way of Jesus in many ways. And so he's this guy who's got a real heart for the gospel. He's a young guy. He's in his like 20s and 30s. He goes to Trinity Church and literally people are so offended by the fact that he actually believes this stuff that mm. they lock him out of the church. Um, he wants to start a, a night service to sort of reach the young adults in Cambridge. And they just re- the church wardens refuse to let him in the building. So he just goes and starts these small groups. Now, out of that little seed of those small groups, he starts a group on Friday night. And the amount of people that come to that group who then go on to do the next thing of God just this group of young adults meeting on a Friday night, talking about the gospel, talking about theology, talking about their culture. Out of that group, other these little little cells, if you like, all over the United Kingdom, out of that spreads so much stuff. People in my country, leaders like Richard Johnson, who was the first chaplain to the Australian colonies, he was part of these groups. So those little seeds then spread out all across the world. So we often can think about like I guess Christian history in some sort of this almost crude idea of secularism that at some point everyone was a Christian and it just slowly dropped off. It's actually more like a roller coaster. Mm. There's these periods of tremendous faith, there's these returns, and and yeah, we need to look at it with more of an accurate eye of how actually things work. Yeah, that reminds me on on our side of thing in the United States at the same time period, Great Awakening period, you had, I believe it was William Tennant, and I, I don't know the exact name of the sermon, but it was something like to the unrepent, unrepent, unconverted preacher behind the pulpit, um, and they they kicked him out 
of basically the seminaries, they wouldn't let him preach because he was saying our preachers aren't even real Christians, to the unconverted minister, and he started something called the Log Cabin, and we're like, we're going to exist in order to actually train people to preach the gospel because we really believe it. Um, and so right there, right before the Great Awakening, where it all supposedly happens, you have ministers that don't even believe in the gospel so much that they're kicking, like you said, they're kicking the dudes that actually believe out. Exactly, yeah. You know, you talk very early on in the book and throughout the book about the idea of renewal. That's a, that's a key theme for you. Uh, and you do a helpful thing um, pretty early in the book where uh, you define renewal alongside revival. And it got me thinking a little bit. When I was a kid, I grew up in 90s youth group Christian subculture, which was a whole thing here in America. And we talked about, I heard the word revival like every Friday night, you know, and uh, we would have these little um, youth group uh, get togethers with several churches and we'd call them revivals. And there was maybe 200 mm-hmm. of us. And I really, at the moment at age 14, mm-hmm. 15, I thought this is the craziest thing ever. There's 200 Christians. This is incredible. You know, I mm-hmm. went to public school and it really felt like revival. Um, but I, I found it really helpful reading some some of what you said, your definitions actually, Mark, about renewal and revival as they're connected to one another. So for our listeners who haven't yet read the book, uh, can you talk a little bit about that so we have a framework for understanding what it is you're talking about with renewal and then how that's connected to revival? Yeah, I, I think this is a really key point that you bring up. I've been to uh, similar type meetings. And uh, I remember actually being in New York and going to this storefront church and it was revival and there was like 40 people there and they're sort of going through the motions. You're like, this, this does not look like revival to me. Um, and and so what I do is I, I talk about renewal um, and renewal can be, is a rebirth. It's making new. It's, it's God coming alive for someone, changing their life. And that can begin at a personal level. I think the key thing we need to realize is that um, you know, when I began to read the different revival literature, you know, revivals always spring from personal renewals. Um, you know, if you want to see revival happen in the corporate, in the large, you need to first ask how that happens in me. So you have these individual renewals. Um, you look at that Charles Simeon had a renewal of kinds in in um, uh, you know Cambridge. Uh, Spurgeon had his own personal renewal as a teenager in Essex, way outside, you know, not way outside of London, but in the sort of outer suburbs of London before he comes to London. Uh, you know, uh, Charles, uh, Wesley, John yeah. Wesley has, has, his, has his little uh, renewal, uh, you know, when his heart strangely warmed at Aldersgate. And, um, you know, so you have this like little burst out of this personal change and then it sort of spreads a little bit. And sometimes that'll just happen with people. There's just folks who just have that renewal and, that, and that's what God is doing at that time. But then it tends to just spread. And, and you have this move from often from renewals then to remnants. Mm-hmm. And remnants are when you have this. And Luther actually spoke of the little church in the church, that often God renews the church by creating a little pure church within the church. Uh, and there's this sense then that what, what is revival? Revival is my definition of is when renewal goes viral. So again, just takes off like a bushfire at that point and just spreads. Um, so I think often we call something a revival way too early, and often what God wants to do is renewal. And we actually can't. The thing I realized is that we can't cause this to happen. And I think even some of those, like let's name this a revival, let's start a revival program. This is not programmatic; it's a sovereign mm. act of God. But what we can do is prepare and get ourselves in the right posture. Mm. You talk about 
the renewal on a personal level, especially uh, almost being catalyzed often through a disruption of sorts, disrupting of the patterns of our lives. So, you know, if we sort of work this thing backwards, I think most people listening would say, okay, I want revival. (laughs) I want the end result of God to the spirit of God to sweep across my, my town, my city, my country, the world. But if that then begins with me in a renewal on a much more micro level, uh, you talk about disruptions that that's going to require some sort of self-sacrifice. Talk a little bit about that. Why, why do you think that is the case that patterns need to be disrupted in order for renewal um, to happen? I think humans are very habitual and humans fall into these patterns where we like to think of ourselves as very spontaneous and free thinkers. Really, you know, you just go to a mall, you just at the bus stop, look at everyone pulls out their phone at the same time, looking at the same social media sites. Humans are hugely uh, habitual and, and marketers get that and governments increasingly get that. So there's this sense that we're just going to stay in this pattern of non-growth. Uh, we're just going to form fleshly patterns um, that oppose the kingdom of God. And often they're going to be in really just boring, mundane ways. Um, and what you'll find is that almost for someone to start to look at the world differently, there needs to be this disruption. Um, you know, if, if you look at that process, often some of the most open people to coming to faith. So, for example, um, we run Alpha at um, our church and we have a number of Persian people um, uh, who've joined our Alpha this year. In Melbourne, in our part of Melbourne, there is stacks of Persian people coming to faith. Um, They've been disrupted. They had to leave their country because of the Iranian revolution and what's come after that. They're in Australia, same thing's happening in Scandinavia. Um, and they're like, my whole pattern's disrupted. I don't speak the language. Um, you know, I, I don't know the culture and people are open. Um, now, what I find interesting is that's been true in the West of, of a lot of migrant populations, which are bringing, bringing health to the church and bringing new converts and new discipleship to the church. But I think what's happening now is the cultural tumult that's hitting the West, the cultural tumult that's hitting the United States is disrupting everyone. Mm. <laughs> it's not like you are anymore uh, in this very comfortable cultural pattern where you know you're going to live the kind of life that your parents did and your kids will probably live the kind of life that you lived. The crazy thing about the West is now, one of the, for the point of the first times in history, a huge amount of people, possibly soon, the majority are not going to have kids. There is this incredible social dislocation happening um, at the moment. So our patterns are being disrupted and there's a threat and an opportunity there. Um, when patterns are disrupted, when people find a lack of meaning, particularly young men, they can get into all kinds of terrible things, whether that's being addicted to drugs or even being engaged in extremist political activity and violence. Um, you know, that's one of the threats. But then there's also this opportunity that people, for the first time I've ever seen this, now I've been in ministry for over 20 years. We used to say that people would, are not going to walk off the street and just come into a church and say, I want to become a Christian. We're beginning to see that happening in Melbourne now. Hmm. I know people who are parts of some of the Anglican cathedrals that are at the centre of Australian cities, and they've got people walking off the streets. They're having to run alpha courses, some of them, because so many people are walking going, I know nothing about Christianity, but I'm so worried about culture right now. I need some meaning and some hope. So we're at this cultural disruption point, and I think instead of freaking out, and there is, a, there is an element that you naturally feel worried about what's going on, 
there is this incredible opportunity to be grasped here. And we've got to move from a fear-based framing to a, an opportunity-based framing. Yeah, that issue of meaning is the utmost importance. I think that is, it's my just kind of personal opinion, that the the meaning crisis is the apologetic issue of the day. It is the evangelistic issue of the day that we have everything. We have everything that was supposed to cure and give us remedy for whatever problem we were suffering with. And the more remedies we got, the, the greater our new problems just arose. And so people are looking for a meaning, a purpose to get through that. And secularism doesn't have that. It's weird. It wants to offer that because like every Disney movie tells you you're important and you're special and you're unique. And that's the messaging. Everyone tells you you're a star. Da, 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 da. That's the, the kind of surface level. But beneath that, the operating system says again and again and again, you know, your feet wander aimlessly on a, on a wandering planet with no purpose or meaning. You're just a product of random chance and an amalgamation of hormones and chemicals. And so we have this surface level messaging up top that's real fluffy and nice and encouraging, but down at the human operating system level is meaningless. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, people, uh, I, we've heard story, probably not as much as what's going on with you, but we've heard stories. We had a guest on here, David Bennett, who's an atheist and just opposed to everything. And someone just says, can I pray for you? And this girl prays for him and he becomes a Christian on the spot just out of nowhere. So wow. it's, it's like the equivalent to that. It's just boom and, and God's showing up. Mm, that's exciting. I want to go back a little bit to, to what you were saying about both, you know, the fear and the opportunity. I think that's such, such a helpful way to think about it. But sometimes it, it feels like, and you mentioned it earlier, these patterns, these sort of mundane patterns that we don't think of as patterns uh, you know, for me, it strikes me that <laughs> one of the one of the really insidious, fraudulent realities of, in particular, the sort of digital technologies that run so rampant in our lives, are that they give us this sense that what we are doing and the lives we are living are not mundane, but we're constantly mm. looking for excitement. Uh, so, you know, when you go on Instagram or you go on Twitter, you're looking for these very quick hit dopamine jolt inducing things, this image or this little 240 character quip that, you know, makes you laugh or makes you angry or whatever, but we're all doing it. Everyone's pulling out their phone, doing it. And the sad thing, when we talk about re revival beginning with renewal and the disruptions that are necessary for renewal, there is really not much difference between those who are faithfully following Jesus and and the rest of the world when it comes to this. So talk a little bit about particularly Christians, followers of Jesus, and what we are risking, what is at stake when we just sort of blindly go the way of consumerism and entitlement and all the things that come with the cultural moment in which in which we find ourselves what's at risk here oh man so much in that i i think like i, I just had this idea recently like what if, what if the primary task of the devil to stop the next renewal is actually just getting us to waste so much time and be distracted <laughs> yeah. you often think it's gonna be some great sort of you know satanic plot where we all become you know illegal arms dealers or something, you know, like it's yeah. like, but what if it's just literally us wasting time, you know? Yeah. And I, I think like one thing I'm trying to say to, to a lot of people is so much of the distraction at the moment is actually this faux war between left and right. 
And mm. it's this political, it's like WWE wrestling, mm, honestly. Yeah. It's the bad guy, the good guy. You watch mm. them on cable news, on Twitter, you know. And, and But more and more, I'm just realizing they're achieving the same goal. Like if you follow the path of the, you know, the extreme right or the extreme left, you end up still as this completely lost individual. Like I almost feel like digital technology, um, if you follow that path, you end up becoming like, you know, like there's so much stuff now about like, I don't know, if you, I'm sure you have it where if you buy a carton of eggs, on it it's now like free range they now have like we have this many chickens per hectare yeah. or something you know <laughs> and um you know i was but that's us now we are the chickens like like digital digital technology now has moved from what it was like in the early days of the internet to now they're farming us for emotional reaction in order to actually get clicks and likes which then mine data from us and that is sold on a commodities market. Like data is becoming bigger than oil. Mm-hmm, yeah. you know? So you're being milked. You're, you're, you're giving up your eggs. You're being milked. Or even worse, you're being slaughtered for, uh, you know, to, to be turned into meat. And, and I can't remember if it's Peter Drucker or Stephen Covey says many years ago, they said, what's the one thing that you're not doing now that would radically advance what you want to happen? And more and more I've thought about this. For me, it's just being more focused spending mm. less time on my phone, more time praying, like more time reading scripture. And it sounds so simple, but developing this, you know, what, what you know, Brother Lawrence called the, you know, the practicing the presence of God, where actually God is as real to me as this alternate thing of imagining what this false crowd is thinking about me. Um, and and just, just to add to that, I, I think one of the things that is unique to this moment, and particularly for young adults, is that never before have we had the ability to create our own platform. Now, if you think in the past, you, you got platformed by a couple of ways. If you're in the secular world, you got platformed by being an expert or someone who had something which the public wanted to see and people got around you and whether that was a TV show or a newspaper column, um, you were there, your message was boosted into the world. And in the church world, only a few people had platform, which was really maybe people in charge of really influential churches, ministries, or great thinkers and theologians who people saw there's something there and that's boosted. But even there, there was still this, you know, like John Stott, say, didn't have people wondering what, filming himself working out in the gym that morning. He still had <laughs> yeah. a large part of his life that people didn't see. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really interesting. When you, when you look at the story of David, David is a young adult who gets anointing before he gets the platform. He's anointed, called, gifted, chosen by God, and Saul still has all the platform. David doesn't have a crown. And there's this 20-year period where David learns what it is to have the anointing without the platform. We have it the whole way, wrong way around now. We have 20, 30 years of platform, and we've got a lot of people with platform with no anointing. Yeah. And, you know, just, just to speak oh. into this, you know, and, and even some of the falls that we're seeing of people who uh, have a lot of platform, yeah. so much of this, because if you're wondering what's going on with that, that's what happens when you have platform before you have anointing. Mm. And so I- anyone listening to this, and I'm, I'm probably am speaking a little bit pastorally now, if, you, if you're out there and you think there's something wrong because you feel hidden or not seen, that's, that, that's the seeds that God is planting at the moment. I have this huge belief that that the next renewal is actually going to be very much about hiddenness. It's actually going to be about the humility. It's actually going to be the opposite. The, 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 the next revival or renewal to come always in the, is in the opposite spirit to what the spirit of the age is doing. Hmm. So there's this sense that embrace hiddenness. Everyone doesn't need to know what you're doing. 
fall in love and in and again with with that secret place with God. Uh, you know, Psalms talks about you know strongholds. A stronghold was a place which wasn't an earthly stronghold. It was that place of intimacy with God, where you could be with Him. And anything we can do to build that up again and be in that hidden place with God, that is going to have so much kingdom power in the next thing that He wants to do. Hey, taking a quick break from our conversation with Mark to uh, tell you a little bit about our big annual Regeneration Forum event that is coming up this fall. It's coming up really soon, November 8th and 9th uh, at uh, in the Bay Area of California uh, at Christ Community Church in Milpitas. Um, this is our big annual event that we do every single fall. It's sold out the last few years and it's an incredible day with hundreds of people who gather to learn, to dig into the Bible and theology and to uh to to worship together and to connect with one another if you're in uh or around or near the bay area or even if you're not we would love to see you there um tickets are uh man you can't beat this their tickets are as cheap as 15 dollars, which includes lunch um and this year our main speakers are josh and sean mcdowell if you do not know josh mcdowell then find him on Wikipedia. He is um, arguably the most influential uh, apologist of the 20th century, at least one. Um, He's sold tens of millions of books, um, ones that have changed our lives personally and um, so many others. Uh, And his son, Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell, is um, also one of the leading voices in Christian apologetics today and really brilliant. Um, So the day is going to be awesome. It's going to inspire you and theme is why believe why believe any of the stuff that christians believe and so uh go to regenerationproject.org find all of the info there uh and sign up and we'll see you in november um also we always want to give a shout out to our uh partners in ministry at western seminary uh, man they have been our home and our number one supporters since day one if you are interested in even potentially exploring further higher christian education uh, go to westernseminary.edu and get more info there uh, campuses sort of all over the west coast and online programs as well it's an incredible school so check them out okay now back to our conversation with mark sayers we live like you said about platform we live in um, outrage culture uh, people are looking to be angry about anything and um the way to survive, uh, certainly to stand out, but even just to survive an outrage culture mm-hmm. is to be loud and yeah. boisterous and to make sure your voice is uh, not more tempered, not more mature, not wiser, but yeah. just louder, bigger than the next If voice. you want a platform, you got to talk crap. Yeah. Seriously. It's yeah. Like, that was, that's what gets the retweets. Right. So, so that happens on a macro, big picture level. It also happens, obviously, on a on a smaller level. Um, what What do you think? What's the antidote to that? What What about keep talking to those of us who are listening? And we just resonate with you, like, oh man, it is about hiddenness. I do feel unseen. I don't have a platform. I have fourteen followers on Twitter. I, you know, like, talk to us. How do we stay faithful to what God is up to um, in the midst of outrage culture? Yeah, great question. Um, outrage culture exists at this moment because what science is telling us is that online, 
negative emotions are more viral than positive emotions. Now that also happens in our social sphere. I was talking to a pastor here in Melbourne of a, a larger church and basically they had a whole, there was, some, there was something where, so they had some weekend, it's like 20 people gave their lives to Christ. They had to make videos about that announcements just to get that good news out. Um, now there was a moral fall of one of their pastors hmm. and the, the, the minister said to me, he reckoned in about seven seconds through text messages, pretty much everyone in his church knew about that. Like there's something in us where, you know, if, if I hear something shocking, it just goes faster and something bad will just travel faster because it, it, it almost sets off our, you know, fight or flight system. Um, so, and, and all that's happened with social media and cable news has just boosted that, you know. I mean, we literally now have world leaders tweeting at each other, yeah. um, you know, like sort of trolling, like it's just surreal. Um, okay, so so we can see that. And because it's so it's so visceral and so captures our, our nervous system, it can feel more important. Um, I, had the, I had this moment where... I was I was looking at Twitter just before I had to pick up my kids from elementary school, and you know there was a whole bunch of stuff going on around and racism and blah 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 in Australia blah blah blah, and and I, I I turned off Twitter, and then I walked down to the school, and I was just waiting. I was a few minutes early, and this mum came in and she had a newborn baby. She's picking up her kids, but she's got this newborn baby, and around her come this group of other mums. One has got like tattoos. And, and, you know, she's got this sort of like punk rock haircut and she sort of comes in and then there's this other one who's sort of wearing active wear and like got her yoga pants on. And then there's this woman with a Islamic scarf on and they're all there and they're just looking at this baby. And I almost felt God say to me, that's normal. That's real life. This is what it's like. In real life, people are just getting along, doing their thing. It's very normal. It's very calm. And that's actually the space where we live most of our lives. We think that the online realm, the outrage realm, the stuff, because it's so visceral and so flashing that that's actually true. When actually the church inhabits this other space, which is so devalued at the moment, real life is absolutely devalued at the moment. I, I can't think of a time ever before in history where this has happened, where people almost don't want to be in real life. But real life exists. Real life is out there. And actually real life is where you're asked to do your ministry, your discipleship, your following of Jesus, your, your sharing of the gospel, that happens in real life. And in real life, people are pretty nice and people are pretty normal and they're hurting and they're looking for answers. And, and also the other thing we need to realize is that if you look at who the, the elites, if you like, who do control the commanding heights of influence are an unrepresentative group, unrepresentative group. They tend to be more post-Christian. They tend to be coastal elites in the inner cities. It's the same in my country. The people who control the, the commanding heights of entertainment and um, media tend to live in the inner city of Melbourne and Sydney, particularly universities. Yeah, that's the deal. But the really, really interesting thing is that when you get out and talk to people, you realize that we actually do live in a diverse culture. All this language around diversity, interesting, is often given by the people who don't live in diverse places. Yes. Just an example from your country. I mean, I, I was there recently um, twice this year and just in Ubers, like the fascinating conversations, getting into an Uber with a guy who was uh, Mexican-American, 
um, who converted to Islam, having this whole conversation with him about faith, another woman who was Brazilian and talking about like what it is for the, what you know, what's her personal things at the moment, what's it like to be in America and then know what's going on with Brazil. Another guy I got into an Uber with who was an Iraqi interpreter with the US forces who's working for Uber. We're having this big conversation where he feels like Uber's using him. He's got this disabled daughter. Incredible conversations with ordinary people who actually are looking for just someone to listen to them are listening for someone to actually come with an open heart, to actually come and actually be a person of peace. People of peace and the peace that transcends all understandings who are humble and normal and warm like Jesus was actually still cut through in real life. Just because that doesn't cut through online, it still cuts through in the 95% of where people live. And just finally on that one, I, I, I prayed this prayer earlier in the year and my prayer was, God, stop showing me. Like, I can see all the people who've got platform. And look, being someone who's written books, often you meet people at platform and, and well-known, and they're not always the most impressive disciples <laughs> to let the cat out of the bag. Mm -hmm. And so I pray, God, some are great. But I said, God, show me who are your truly humble servants for what you want to do next. So any event I went to, churches, places, down the store, I just God started showing me these people who literally they're the quiet ones in an event. They're maybe the ones putting the chairs out, sitting up the back. And God started to show, say to me, these are the people after my heart. David had anointing because he was a man after God's heart. The next thing is not the, the thing with people with the most Twitter followers or the biggest church or the most Instagram ascetic personal profile in the world. It's who are the humble, hungry people who, who who actually are just desiring God and nothing else. And that what cuts through. You can have five Instagram followers. And that's how that's who's God's going to plant the seed of his next renewal in. I was going to ask you how I could get some more Twitter followers because I'm trying to increase my <laughs> platform and, you know, expand my ministry reach. But you know. <laughs> just buy them. Yeah. <laughs> are there simple uh, practices you mentioned habits and, and stuff like what's so you're a college student and you're going okay I'm digging all this but is there any like what would be three things you could tell me right now that I I could like what do I need to start doing I mean it may be as simple as like get rid of your smartphone type type of thing are there like what would be your top three lists that you would tell people the, the first thing I would do is we call it at our church win the day and and what do we mean by that again it's so simple but there are now people, the smartest minds in the world at the moment are set about setting the agenda for your day. If you actually look in real time at the time architecture of how we spend our days, what do people do? They wake up, they look at their phone. I'll yeah. check the weather. And then before you know it, you're 20 tweets deep into something or reading some ridiculous <laughs> entertainment story about some controversy you never knew about, about a reality TV star who's irrelevant. Um <laughs> So, so what we said is that you, you, you need not to win the day, not because of like oh, personal power, I want to achieve in the face of this digital thing. No, no, win the day and, and, and where God is setting the tone for your day. God is setting the tone for your day. And his presence and the Holy Spirit is guiding what you're going to do. His word is feeding you. So, you know, we said to people, get your phone at the other end of the house, buy an alarm clock. You need to change the environment. A lot we try and do on willpower, it's actually changed the environment. Humans are hugely mm -hmm. environment. One of the guys we've got on staff, he um, is part-time on staff. The other part of the time, he builds hospitals and shopping malls. And the incredible art that, that, that shopping malls have of influencing your behavior without you even realizing it, and it's all about the environment. So 
part of me changed the environment. Um, the second thing is, um, sorry, just to, just to um, tie that down. So put your phone at the end of the house. Don't let digital corporations set your day. Begin the day with scripture, with prayer, asking God, even if just sitting there, meditating on a psalm, circle some words. What does it say to you? Do that for 10 weeks, even if you feel nothing, and you'll begin to turn it into a habit and actually begin to be something. I, I am so grateful. My parents weren't in ministry. My dad was an architect and mum worked in a kindergarten. And But I saw them every morning get up, close that door and read scriptures. Like that's one of the greatest gifts they've given me. I do that now. My kids see it. My kids come in this morning. They're asking me about different things in my scriptures. Like, like you know, that, that Joshua meditating on the word, chewing on it like a card. Now, number two, discipleship and real world discipleship at this time is fundamentally important. The tenor and tone of this world is pushing us into social isolation and an intensified individualism unseen before in human history. The dominant household in the West is becoming one person living alone. That's never happened before. Mm. Now, I'm not beating up on people. If that's your situation, that's your situation. But increasingly, we are living in silos. We're unable to talk to people. Emerging generations have social anxiety. A lot of that social anxiety is actually learned. Now, I'm not saying that's your fault. That's how the culture and environment has shaped you, where you don't actually have to talk to other people. I would say get yourself, even if it's, we, ha- we also have what we call tribes at our church, groups of three, where you just meet with two other people of the same, uh, same sex and you just ask each other and, and iron sharpens iron and champion each other on your discipleship. You can't do this alone. You need other people to champion on your discipleship. Get into a discipleship environment. That's a smaller group and that's a church because being in community can train us in a way that we can never learn as individual life projects. You need community. When you're in your 20s, you feel like you don't need community. Let me tell you now, when you're 70 or 80 and you have health challenges, you need community. When your life, the bottom falls out, you need community. The early church cut through in the Roman Greco world, which had no welfare system, no government nets to save people, that broke through because it was a better alternative society which truly looked after people. You need to invest in that and contribute to that. And you also need to be part of that for your own sake. And through doing that, we show the love of God. Um, So at this moment, we can get angry and want the government to do this and these people to do this. That's all really important, but we actually need to actually model something ourselves. Um, and I think, I think the third thing is, is really simple. When I read the revival renewal literature, when I read this, all the great people that God had used, there's a point where every single one of them got to this point where they put on the altar, their everything. Mm. If you haven't had an altar moment where you said, this is not my life project, this is not my life, like Working against secularism begins with the desecularization of self. Hmm. There are so many people out there who are complaining about secularism that their personal lives are actually very secular. And wow. they act as if God doesn't exist. We have practical atheism. I believe God exists, but my life doesn't show anything. And again and again, in like in every five, ten years, God's like, put it on the altar again. Put everything on the altar. You know, like like all these things, like writing, ministry, this cultural moment podcast, all these things God does, none of them are the thing. God's the thing for me. And the minute I put my identity in it, it actually becomes the relic of the last thing that God did. So God will have a move. It often sparks a movement, but then we think it's actually in the architecture of the movement. Mm. 
Yeah. And we miss that as actually God that did that move. And then all of a sudden that just becomes a, a machine done by humans driving. And the next thing we know, it's a, a museum looking backwards. Hmm. I, I always want to be with the next thing that God's doing. I get to do that when I surrender in obedience. You know, the, 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 the prize of surrender is revelation of the next thing that God's going to do. Um, so those three things, win the day, get deep into Christian discipleship and community and, and put everything on the altar of your life. We, we get our lives by giving it up. I think that's a, what a fitting way to end this conversation. My hope, though, there's so much in your book. Uh, we, we're, we're like just barely scratching the surface here. And I know um, our friends who are listening are probably like, holy cow, I have so much to chew on. Uh, I would just encourage all of you listening, go uh, and check out Reappearing Church, but also check out uh, Mark's previous work as well. Uh, Mark, for those who are listening and for whom this is just an introduction to you, um, where what are some easy ways that they can connect with your work, find your work online, uh, and maybe connect with you in, in some ways? Um, probably just marksays.co um, is just the little website thing with <laughs> different things I've, I'm doing or done. Um, that's probably the best way. Um, but also I just really encourage people to like, like what you're seeing with me is someone who has, I, I, a few years ago, I just felt this thing of don't look at all the latest books that everyone's reading. Who are the people that God has used? Go, go and read how God worked in history. You see these source books, you know, Imitation of Christ, Confessions. Like, like we need a new generation who goes back to the sources of renewal. So I'd encourage people to, to, to look at that stuff even before you look at me. You are the first guest in two years of doing this podcast that has promoted uh, not your own book, but the books of others. <laughs> yeah. But you're promoting good ones, and I think that's um, such wisdom that you're – that you're uh, granting and, our and Augustine and Cal- they ain't getting get no royalties either. It's all, it's all. Most of them stuffs are free online, man. You can Dude, read all uh, the source exactly. material for free. And they didn't have any so Twitter true. followers. He, no, no Twitter. No, followers. but you could follow me. It's my Isaac Serrano. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Mark, thank you so much for yeah. uh, the work that you have done and are doing. Um, I say this to a lot of people, but man, it, it is so fitting for you. You're such a much incredibly needed voice for our day and for our age and so um, thank you so much grace and peace to you thanks for spending the time absolute pleasure guys